0: I am Neil Edwards, and this is the Leadership Range, where we elevate the voices of black and brown coaches, leaders, and allies, and have soulful conversations about all things at the intersections of leadership, relationships and teams, well-being, and equity. Here I offer deep insights and practical tips for work and life. Today, you are going to hear the first in a series of four conversations I had with people after the alarming events in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I wanted you to get a sense of how these people experience the events in their own words and what it means for them in the context of allyship. What I love about this conversation is the permission, intimacy, and give and take between us. You are going to hear from Jillian Egan. Jillian is a mother, she's 42 years old, an attorney, and she lives in a diverse neighborhood in Louisiana. Listen as Jillian navigates her emotions in real time while demonstrating remarkable, reflective and responsive skill. There are two doorways I want you to notice in the conversation as you listen. The first, the doorway aspiring allies might need to walk through to go beyond actions and performance. The second one, the doorway of invitation for both aspiring allies and those who are marginalized in some way. Where I am pointing you is in the direction of the call to unity that is in the public discourse right now, and how allyship is one way to create that unity. Enjoy. So Jillian, here we are. Um, Thank you for being here. I, I really appreciate your time on short notice to join in this conversation. It's been an amazing week. Uh, we can choose so many words to describe this week, but I'm just going to go with amazing for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone has had their own experience. And I'd love to hear about yours this week uh, through a couple lenses, uh, one in particular around uh, allyship. Um, and the other is just through the lens of your own eyes and, and your life. And so, you know, this week, We had a, what I'm going to call an insurrection, you know, an attempted something went on in the U.S. Capitol. For you, uh, Jillian, what, what hit you the hardest about being one of the millions of witnesses to the events this week?
1: Well, it's been a difficult week for everyone in the country, I think. And I'm still processing what happened and what I saw. But the initial raw sort of thoughts that I um, had as I saw it happening was a bubbling up of the same rage that I have felt periodically for the past four years. And it's the rage of someone who feels powerless. I suppose, because whether that's true or not, that's the feeling that I'm having right now. So speaking, I'll start with my own eyes lens. Speaking from my own eyes lens, I'm a 42-year-old professional woman. I'm an attorney and I'm a private, you know, civil law firm is where I work. And that's a predominantly male, white male space. Um, So definitely not universally, not every white male, not even close to every white male I encounter is a mediocre person who (laughs) maybe doesn't deserve the position that they're in, but a lot of them are. I find it very often, you know, certain judges, certain uh, people at the law firms where I've worked, certain opposing counsel are just not, they're occupying positions that I think perhaps if this was a less sexist and racist world, they wouldn't have. And so a lot of that rage is something that I experienced this week because I know that a lot of what we're going through right now is because an incompetent white male was placed into the job of the presidency that he did not deserve. And then speaking through the lens of allyship, the first thing everyone noticed, and it's been all over social media and what everyone has said, is how painful it is to see how differently these people are treated and spoken about and encountered than the black and brown people and their allies who were um, protesting earlier in the summer. And the obviousness of the difference in treatment and yet the inability to have this thing that we see with our own eyes on cameras that is undeniable, the inability to have that evidence foment some sort of change there's still so much resistance to change even now that we can't tell ourselves that it's not happening for the ally piece of this I suppose that experience has been one of despair I guess mm-hmm. despair
0: mm-hmm. I feel a bit of a you know it I feel a bit of a sinking as you say that because honestly you know you're, you're a white woman over there and you mentioned sexism, you know, patriarchy, and racism and I go, oh my god, you know, here's this person I see, right, um, whom I believe to have some power, you know, some privilege, some rank in this system that is feeling powerless in this moment and um, I think I sink in my chair a little bit uh, with some sadness when I hear that. So, thank you for sharing that truth right away. I want you to say a little bit about what allyship really means to you. What impact did this week have on that meaning, given what you've just expressed?
1: Sure. Well, allyship to me. It means action I guess. So I have felt an affinity for a while um, with people more vulnerable than me and you're right I do have in a lot of situations I have have power that's conferred on me by my race for sure. Um, I'm one of the least threatening looking people. you know I'm a white 42 year old mom um, and that buys me a whole lot of privilege and a certain type of treatment and so, we live, actually, my street is predominantly African-Americans. We live in a very socioeconomically and racially and age-mixed neighborhood, which I like, and is is by design. And so I look out for them, and occasionally, you know, police will come and knock on the door. Usually, it's about, you know, a bunch of unpaid parking tickets or something like that. But I try, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I still, I try to go out there and, like... Be the white mom, like, hey officer, what's going on? Can I can I help you? Is my neighbor having some issues? And so that's a little bit of allyship for me, just inserting myself sometimes into situations. Maybe they don't want me there. I don't know. But I feel like if I can be of help, I just want them to know that I'm there. Mm -hmm. Um, and another piece of allyship is in my firm and in the work that I've done. For example, we have an African American babysitter who's maybe 28, 29. She's been working forever to get a degree and she finally got it in HR. And I'm trying to find her a job. I'm trying to use my connections through my law firm and what that's gotten me through my community to see if I can get her put in front of some people to have some interviews that she might not otherwise have. Um, And I've also done that for lots of other lawyers who, if we were were a purely merit-based system, they wouldn't need my help. But since we're not, I just try to Shove them in spots that they might not otherwise get to be so they have opportunities to then prove themselves there. So that's that. And then after this week, I mean, it's still pretty raw. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I, this is just added to the sense of urgency that I have about allyship and about just elevating a position of African American people or Latino people or whatever around me so that they don't need me anymore. You know, I want them to find themselves in a position of their own power, so then they can do the lifting up of their own communities and they don't need white saviors anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And so this has just added to the urgency of that.
0: Yeah, let's go with this notion of because I mean, I love that you are spending your equity, inserting yourself. And say, you know, I'm going to be the white mom on the block that goes and has, uh, you know, I'm going to have that conversation with the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I love how you you just sort of slipped right into that persona the way you did it. <laughs> it's <laughs> a little bit of an act. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: You're be a little dumb.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and being an advocate, not just being an advocate for, but putting people you care about, you know, black, Latino, whatever in positions where they can gain access where they may not otherwise have that access and then you, you, you know you mentioned this notion you know you're helping them you know sort of this white savior here's my question have you had conversations with any of these people that you help have you asked them how you could support them have they come to you and asked you for something what happened there to draw you into this or was it all something internal to you that compelled you to do what you said, which is take action?
1: I think it's more internal. I do have one particular friend I'm thinking of who I've had pretty open conversations. Actually, I have two probably. They're both former colleagues, both Black women, really good lawyers. And we've had some really open conversations about these kinds of things. And I feel really comfortable talking to them about it. And they do too. One of them is senior to me and she's helped me with stuff. And then one of them is a little bit junior to me. And I put her in the positions like I was talking about, but most of it is driven by my experiences. And here's why, because I've been in numerous situations as a female in a predominantly male space where something was done. Like um, one particular time, something snide was said about an upcoming maternity leave and how only weak people take maternity leave, stupid. But I was sitting in this room full of men, white men who I know respect me and are my colleagues and none of them said a word. Mm-hmm. And later they spoke to me one-on-one. We're like, oh, we're so sorry he said that. He's so dumb. We hate him, you know. Blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, great, fine, you know, whatever. But say something there. Don't be such a wuss. Like spend some of your political capital in this room to show everyone in the room, not just me, the other woman in the room who may have a baby one day and the other men in the room who may say something like that one day to show them that this is not okay. That Mm -hmm. was a really dumb thing he said. And he's not going to be able to say that. That's just one example, but some things like that have happened in the past where someone had an opportunity to be in LA and stand up and they didn't. And then they told me later that they disagreed with what happened. And I just thought how much more powerful it would have been if they had sort of joined me in the moment in front of everybody and just done something. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. It takes a little boldness, but we're lawyers. We fight with people all the time. Like, why mm-hmm. can't you do that?
0: Do you have an example where you've done that in the moment?
1: Hmm. Well, no. I mean, I, if I thought for a minute, I might. I can think of a couple examples where I wasn't as brave as I wanted to be.
0: Will you share one, one of those?
1: Sure. So I used to work, I worked at a bunch of law firms. So this is not my current law firm. It was a previous one. And it was like a good old white boy law firm, just the easiest way to to put it. And we were in in the break room, a whole bunch of us, including one of my mentors, who's a black man. I would jump over a cliff for that man. He's just a wonderful lawyer and a wonderful mentor. And some of the older white men in the room were talking about the blacks. Well, you know, one guy, this is, he was in there and there was another black attorney there, the only two in that office. They said, This is looking like the Black Lawyer Caucus or something like that. We got a lot of blacks here now, which was really, it's not the most offensive way to talk about black people, but it was just weird. It was like, Oh, clearly you don't see these as people. You see these as black people. There's the black people and there's just people. And, you know, I made a comment, but it wasn't as strong as it should have been. I said something like, Do we call them blacks? Is that, you know, I try to like diffuse it with humor. Mm-hmm. But I, in the moment, I wasn't brave enough to say, What is wrong with you? That's mm-hmm. not a word we use
0: mm-hmm.
1: in 2000, whatever year it was.
0: So you said what you said out loud, however you said it. And you were saying some things I make up to yourself internally. And you were experiencing it internally. Yes. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I felt the sort of twist of anxiety that you can feel sometimes when you're like, okay, this is a time when I could do the right thing and possibly get myself in trouble, or I can be a little sneakier and try to keep myself out of trouble. Because the Black man who was my mentor had lived with us for years, but the Black woman was a brand new lawyer. And I... I didn't want her to think that I was going to let that go or like that was an okay thing and that was something she was going to have to live with for the rest of her career. But I also didn't want to get in trouble because I was pretty young of myself. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is all the internal things that are happening. And then also like, I'm just so sick of working with these people. I just can't Mm -hmm. do this anymore. I don't want to be around them. I don't like, Mm -hmm. this is a waste of my energy, feeling this rage for the way they're behaving.
0: So I want to I want to lock in on something because I I make up that there's there's something in here that's true for a lot of white people who aspiring allies or allies, mm-hmm. which is how much personal risk am I willing to take? Yeah, and that you were not willing to do in that moment. Not enough. There, there was a line, and, and we we are quick to judge ourselves. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there around the not enough. <laughs> right, because uh, you did you did something. Yet, I believe that that's something to notice. That what is my personal edge? What is your personal edge in that moment? And to dig into that, and in the context of allyship. So I want to. So little time and so much to dig into. And you, I really appreciate you <laughs> just just sitting in this with me. Um, you talked about. Taking action and most of it coming from the inside, internal. So I want to make a request, but I have to ask your permission. May I make a request of you? Okay. Okay. Because you get to say no, you, um, you get to say yes, you get to reflect on it, ask me more about it. What if, in some of the relationships that you have with Black people, other marginalized people, you get into a conversation and you ask, and you give some examples and you say, what would you expect from me if I am your ally in this type of a situation? And design that so that if a situation like that came up again, you would know what that person you are trying to support expects And you would understand what you need to do. And you would have made some agreements. How might that be different? I I want you to do that. That's my request. How do you, how do you react to that?
1: Well, so I think that's smart. I think, you know, Glennon Doyle Milton talks a lot, not about in race specific situations, but just about practicing things. Um, if you want to be brave in a situation, brave enough to do something that's uncomfortable, it's a really good idea to practice, even like say the words a couple times so that you're ready. So that when you're nervous and in that situation, you're ready. And so i like the idea of asking someone what would be the most helpful, and then I can practice it. And then I'll have confidence that it's right. Cause I also don't want, I'm also very sensitive to not make it worse for them, you know, like a lot of the black people that I've worked with, and it's largely African-American just because of where I live, Louisiana. If I lived in California, I think there would be more Latino and Asian folks that that were dealing with this, but a lot of them sort of want to skate by too. You know, they don't want a big like rah, 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 shining light on them mm-hmm. when something bad happens. They just want it to go away. And so I want to be able to feel confident that I'm doing what they need from me. The other thing, though, and I'll be honest, it makes me a little bit nervous about it, is I have, I'm thinking of two friends in particular who are just really good friends. And I would never say the words, I don't see color, because I think that's a not a great phrase. It's also um, bullshit. But I, I guess I try to, <laughs> when I... <laughs> it is and it's not a, it's not a value right like you want to see people for who they are all that they are but true honest of course I see color and of course when we're together and we're friends and we're hanging out and we've spent nights in hotel rooms together I mean we're really close that is always there the fact that I'm white and they're black and it adds this little tiny layer of distance which I don't like but it's there because I'm afraid that there's going to be some cultural touchstone that we don't have in common that's going to make it hard for us to communicate. You know, there's just a lack of affinity, I guess, in certain things that we're we not going to be able to overcome. And so the thought of asking them that makes me feel like a little bit worried that that gap would grow a little bit bigger because they would think that Mm -hmm. I see them as Black first and friend second. And I don't have any coherent thoughts about that. That's just (laughs) what comes to my head.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and um, some of my friends know this and, and some of my white friends, some of my friends from various Asian countries know this about me. When you're in an interracial friendship and you pretend like race is not there, the friendship is less intimate and less powerful and less connected than it otherwise could be. Because there is no denying the fact that it is a interracial friendship, right? So just want to throw that out there. I believe that there is potential for strengthening the friendship and the relationship by having that courageous conversation and, you know, taking that step, action alone, which is wonderful, to relationship and co-designed action you know creating it creating it with them and so um you did something that uh you know i, I didn't i didn't ask you to do but i want to i want to give it a name and that is you spoke about uh the, the unspoken in your relationship so thank you for that I believe that there are a lot of people a lot of uh, white people and perhaps a lot of Maybe I make up more white women because women are generally more relational and intimate. Carry what you carry. The fear to have that conversation and not say what you know is there, but you want to. Um, what is lost? I'm going to tie this back to the events from this week. In those friendships, in those relationships, when you see what you see in the world, like you saw this week, and you don't name those things in those relationships. What do you think is lost?
1: Well, definitely an opportunity for deeper intimacy and honesty. But also, so much I think of racism and sexism and patriarchy and all the isms has to do with this sort of invisible barrier that is just culturally baked into us. And a lot of it we don't even see. And so, I think maybe. When you do see it, it becomes more imperative to name it and particularly with the people who suffer most from it so that they know that you see it and you see them. And so that You know, if I'm brave enough to have those conversations and they are still friends. So I I certainly can, perhaps I can make them feel less crazy. I think sometimes you can feel a little bit crazy, like gaslit. Like I see this, right? This is obvious, right? Doesn't everybody see this, but they deny it again and again and again, or they don't bring it up. And so I might, that might be an opportunity for them to feel supported, I guess.
0: Because if they listen, then they'll know. Yes. You haven't thought of that?
1: (laughs) Oh, I'll (laughs) I'll tell them to. They would if I asked them
0: to. They absolutely would. Yeah, you know that simple question: What am I not seeing? What if you asked them that? What am I not seeing? And gave them permission to say, "Imagine what's possible there." Anyway, I'm I'm going to thank you again because I did end up asking you with permission uh, some some coaching questions <laughs> and offering you some things. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't know by to do any of that on the call. Um, that's just where we ended up. So thank you for, for dancing and playing with me on that. And thank you for your time today. Is there anything that you want to say from your learning this week and from your just lived experience? Anything you want to say to your peers who were white women, men, or to anybody who experiences some form of marginalization what Do you want to leave folks with?
1: I have built up some social capital and some, I have some things to spend, I guess. And so I would ask how I can spend them in your service. If there's a thing that I can do for you that you think is helpful, and that can include learning from you, not even necessarily spending my social capital, but just listening to what's important now. You know, I'll reach out to you, but, but I would love for you to reach out to me too, because I want, I feel it is imperative to take more action than I have been, and I want to do it right.
0: So there's an invitation to reach out to Jillian, because she doesn't have all the answers. Uh, so, you, so, no. you, so, <laughs> so you might need to just tell her. Um, yeah. But I also heard a commitment from Jillian that, that she will also ask in her existing relationships. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jillian, for your time. I appreciate you for being here.
1: Thank you so much. It was an honor.
0: Thank you, Jillian. A courageous step in a crucial conversation. First ask, what am I not seeing? What I would say, folks, is be prepared to listen with an open mind and open heart. Rage and powerlessness. What do you do with that? I have certainly felt some combination of both of these emotions and Jillian said these right out of the gate. My guess is many people have felt some version of it. Jillian also described a deep sense of despair when she was seeing what she saw and we see essentially no movement toward a change in spite of the clear evidence in front of our eyes. For me, that sounds like a place of running out of gas. No energy left to do anything. This is exhausting work, folks, which is why, like last week, I encourage everybody to pay attention to well-being. I say it is exhausting work, and that is true for aspiring allies. What I will also say is it's exhausting for many because it's essentially every day at the office for people who can see their own marginalization where others cannot. And the structure and systems are designed not to see it and to offer protection to the maintenance of the status quo rather than fomenting meaningful and lasting change that results in equity. Jillian talks about the work she has done through actions, pushing people forward, getting people interviews that they otherwise would not have had the opportunity to get and inserting herself into situations in her neighborhood to provide cover and support for her neighbors by using her privilege. Basically, she is spending her equity to create equity for others. Those things are great and they are needed. What I love most, though, is what I did not hear. Unfortunately, it is the approach of many corporations. Jillian didn't take the perspective that the people she was helping were not smart enough, skilled enough, or not yet deserving a lot of corporate programming takes the point of view that underrepresented minorities need training because there is a competency gap that is mostly false there may be a cultural gap which is also problematic when the idea is to lead everyone into a particular cultural frame defined by the majority rather than moving toward cultural integration across differences In an equitable way when i asked jillian for an example of where she spent that equity in a bold way that she expected from others she admitted she didn't have an example but recognized where she had the opportunity and didn't act i have to acknowledge jillian again for saying that out loud most people are unwilling to admit that fact especially on recording for the whole world hear it so thank you jillian for that anyway if you are an aspiring ally you know what your inner voice is saying Uh, there's no question about it you have an inner voice that's running almost all the time now i'm not suggesting you go around blasting everybody you should not try to blast yourself either for the failures what i do invite you to is a new kind of allyship where you have the conversation you need to have with those who you want to support and ask them how they expect you to support them. In that conversation, um, agreements get made. And as Jillian pointed out, you will become more confident uh, at supporting the people you care about and are in relationship with. But not only that, you will become more skilled at doing it in general and can help more people you don't even know. Uh, your own avoidance, and silence as a person in a position of rank, power, and privilege is likely a greater impediment to producing small and large changes in the workplace and the world that you say you want. When I asked Jillian what is lost in not having conversations across differences, her response immediately was intimacy. If you're familiar with the work of the Trusted Advisor Associates, then you might be familiar with the trust equation. In it, intimacy is a crucial element, often missed in the workplace. It's a crucial element for developing trustworthiness, according to this trust equation. And I would venture it is measurably more absent when working across cultural and racial differences. Intimacy in the trust equation comprises empathy and transparency something that is sorely lacking in the workplace, but is a crucial element of building allyship and building trustworthiness. Conversations across differences is really the ultimate test of inclusive leadership. How to go about having those types of conversations is a skill that requires learning, practice, feedback, and competent support. There was so much to gain out of this conversation. I encourage you to listen to it again. Meanwhile, I want to leave you with a notion that comes out of the work i and other practitioners do in relationship systems intelligence work created by CR global it is an idea that begins to open the door to conversations across differences and it can perhaps be used as a bit of a mantra here it is curiosity casts out fear curiosity casts out fear when you can embody curiosity not just talk about it from a place of power-filled pontification but when you can become it across differences that make you the most uncomfortable then you may be on your way to seeing through the clouds of your own shadows thank you again for listening to the leadership range join us again next monday to listen to another voice sharing their experience of the Six insurrection on the united states government if you haven't done so yet you can find me on linkedin at linkedin.com slash in slash n edwards or Instagram at Neil underscore Edwards underscore coaching. Your feedback is always welcome. If you have ideas for future topics or know a leader whose voice you think ought to be on the leadership range, send me an email at neil at neiledwardscoaching.com. Until next week, this is the leadership range.